It's been a very long time, decades, since we've seen a collection of poetry from Barbara Kingsolver. The wait is over. Her new collection, How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons, offers us some 66 poems about everyday matters, relationships, family, the natural world, and the hope inherent in creating art. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. Barbara Kingsolver has been on the literary scene for decades, perennially wowing readers and critics alike with novels like The Poisonwood Bible and Unsheltered. Her first book of poetry was published early on in her writing career in 1992, and she soon focused on novels and works of nonfiction. Now, at last, she again trains her powers of observation and writing to a new collection of poetry, How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons. Here is Barbara King-Solver reading three poems from the collection. This is How to Love Your Neighbor, and this is dedicated to my beloved mentor and friend, Francis Golden. How to Love Your Neighbor, all of them not just the morning shoppers, the man who walks his chortling dog, the couples with strawberry children. These are the given. Announce your rebel kindness in letters painted much too large on the back of your jacket. Children will stare. Dogs bark. Doors bolt. Anyway, walk. Your shoes will wear out and then your knees. You will feel the cold's every angle, the want of rain, a drought of blessings, your vanished face. Close by, behind dust-colored curtains, a woman wrapping her hijab, girding herself for the street of this day, will call to her husband, come see. These two will kneel at their window. Mercy wears lightning bolts on her shoulder, threads of fire in her white hair, the face of the sun. And now, creation stories. The Christmas she was five, I stayed up until first light, making boots of all things, the very pair the brave girl wore in her storybook. She wanted no other thing leather and needle-punctured palms, inventing skills I didn't have, cuffing and embroidering, cursing an illustrator whose tools were ink and fancy while I had rawhide. Well, that was the year of the boots, worn everywhere but bath and bed, a story made real. The year she believed in Santa Claus, she said, because no regular person could do that. Years later, she longed for the jacket all the cool girls had. My ways and means couldn't stitch that one together. I hoped a luxury denied might be the travail of brave girl pressed in her memory book instead of the rest, my long-held breath for those years we had to go it alone without support, the miles from family, the making of her everything in the place where life had nailed us down to nothing. Now she is a mother herself, no regular person. 
She knows the work of a life is the making of things a child will not believe we could have made because. And finally, the hands of trees. The hands of trees. Maple is wide open, splay-fingered in joy, jazz hands, or the friendly gesture, making a point politely, as if Canadian. Catalpa, a church full of Southern Baptist ladies in summer dresses, devoutly moist, mid-sermon, held in suspense as Jesus rounds up his rascal lambs, the steady motion of all those fans. Aspen, notorious for the palsy. To be fair, the air is thin up there in the Rockies, and sometimes wolves. Sassafras wears mittens knitted by a harebrained ant, sometimes with an extra thumb, sometimes none whatsoever. Fig leaves, cupped as if to conceal, as everyone and his brother knows by now, the shy parts of Eve. Less delicate than you might think, sturdily veined, made for the job. Redbud, southern belle, all heart, no backbone, thrusts hers forward, dangling limp from the wrist, waiting to be kissed. Mimosa, anyone can see, how they tremble with thanks for a star that concedes to work the day shift. How they reach for light's full octave, recoil from a firm handshake, long to stroke the velvet nap of night, but with dusk's owl eyes blinking open, press closed in prayer. That was Barbara Kingsolver reading from her latest book, a poetry collection called How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons. I talked to Barbara Kingsolver from her home in Southern Appalachia about finding meaning in everyday acts of living. So it was time for a poetry collection from Barbara Kingsolver. It was high time. Were you feeling this way too? I think I was. Um, I am not mostly known as a poet. I'm mainly known as a novelist. Um, but I've always written poems. Poetry was the first form that I took seriously as, as a writer in my 20s when I began to take my own writing seriously. But I, um, <laughs> I discovered nobody much pays you to write poetry, <laughs> and, and yet I could make my living as a novelist. And so novels became my day job. That's how I've supported my family for 30 years. And poetry was always sort of a passion project, the thing that I I read and wrote purely for myself. Um, and you might be able to tell that because these poems are more personal and more intimate, I would say, um, than, than most of what I've written before. But was it time? Yes. Something about the last few years... Um, the the sort of strangeness and scariness of of the world and what it's becoming um, moved me towards relying more on poetry, both as a reader and a writer. And so I wrote a good deal more poetry in the last uh, three or four years, and it occurred to me that maybe my readers felt the same way, that this would be kind of a 
a relief package I could send into the world because I think there's something so comforting about poetry. The title of your your first collection in 1992 is Another America, which for me is the perfect title perennially now, it seems like for any work of poetry about everyday subjects. Mm-hmm. And that's not what that work was about. It seems like a title for a poetry collection for now, but then we have the equally perfect sounding little enigmatic title, How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons. And there's a series of poems in the first of the seven sections with that subheading, with that title, How to Fly. Tell me about naming the whole collection, How to Fly. Well, titles for me are very important um, as a writer. And with a novel, I usually know the title up front. Uh, right from the beginning, and the title functions as a kind of key as I'm writing to kind of unlock all the doors of this complicated novel. A collection of poetry is so different. After I pulled it all together, I thought, well, this could be named anything. There's so many different titles within in the collection uh, so I, I typed up the table of contents, and I kind of passed it around to my friends. I took a poll, um, and I came up with all uh, many different votes, um, uh, including uh, six women swimming naked in the ocean. Um, but I thought that might attract the wrong crowd. <laughs> in the end, the marketing departments um, of both my uh, British and U.S. publishers came back to How to Fly. They really liked that. And I was pleased because that was my own first choice. It's, it's the title of one of, the, one of the poems. And as you mentioned, the whole first section is they are all how-to poems, um, but not how to fix your leaky faucet or your carburetor. <laughs> More like how to do absolutely nothing or how to fly. Um, and I feel the whole collection is best summed up by that poem, which is about how to find lightness in the process of living and how we can find um, grace in unexpected corners of our life and decide that, in, that what we have is enough and how, how, um, how much joy that brings, but how we have to keep reminding ourselves of it over and over and over again, 10,000 times and more. I came across an article, I can't remember if it was the day before or after the election in 2016. It had nothing to do with the election. It Mm -hmm. was a health and wellness um, article. The headline was something like, How to Fall. And the instructions really were, how to fall without hitting your head or making it all worse. (laughs) (laughs) You've just given me an idea. I should write a poem, How to Fall. The most useful thing to know. (laughs) Well, I kept thinking about that while I was reading How to Fly. It's rather instructive in opposite ways. Just as you've said, it's sort of saying, this is what you need to know so you don't fall. It was the other. But this is what you need to know so you can approach life. This is how to fly. So let's not worry about you know, the worst thing that can happen to us today. (laughs) But let's think about how we can make 
you know, this moment better. Like, I really like that idea, like, and not in a Pollyanna way, but how to approach, we still have things to live through. We still have things to notice and be aware of and make and do and see. Um, and so it's like, yeah, all of these uh, 10,000 ways to be reminded of, of that fact. Of what we already have. It's so, so much a part of the human condition to bemoan what we don't have, and especially right now, you know, we're kind of wallowing in what I can't do. And um, there's such wonder in what we still can do. And I find, I find so much grace in so many parts of my life, even, um, even if it has been constrained. Um, I find so much joy just looking at the trees outside my window and thinking about how even though this is a really bad year for humans, the trees are doing fine. Um, luckily, I'm, I live in southern Appalachia where the trees are doing fine. They're not on fire mm-hmm. as they are out west. But, I mean, there's so many parts of the world, so many species that are um, still going on just fine. And there's so much that we can take from them and learn from them. Just um, gratitude. There are poems in, the, in one section in the book called This Is How They Come Back to Us. And I know you wrote these poems well before February 2020, pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's just something so poignant and powerful in reading these poems. I feel almost as though the poems to these folks who left your world in recent mm-hmm. years or even a long time ago can somehow now, for those of us reading the poems, represent the tens of thousands lost in America more recently to the pandemic, mm-hmm. who are memorialized, unfortunately, collectively in a five-second segment at the top of the news hour. Yeah, There's just something about reading an elegy for me now in poems like yours in that short section. I imagine that they can be read in memory of all those lives, all those names, all those people who who did things and loved and felt felt emotions, um, but didn't receive the proper memorializing or ceremony. I just mm-hmm. I was just so moved by that particular section. I'm so glad you were. It's um, you know, as as we mentioned before, it was it was last year when I decided to bring uh, this collection together and to publish it and so I thought that I was publishing it into a difficult world and I had no idea how difficult but that section of the book that is all elegies um, poems for people I've lost um, came about because I'm the person in my family who gets uh, who gets uh, nominated to write the elegy poem when there's a funeral you know so this is ha- so I, I've collected unfortunately, quite a few of them, and I was thinking about whether or not to include them, and some people said, well, that would be kind of a downer, but I thought, and of course, you know, I also revised the poems. Some of them were rather specific, and I worked on the poems to give them more universal appeal, you know, sort of make them more universal, uh, and to speak to a larger um, audience, but at the same time, I thought, 
when I was reading over these poems, how many different ways death comes into our lives. Sometimes it's a terrible tragedy when someone dies young, leaving children behind, young children behind, um, as as is was the case with my sister-in-law. Sometimes it's the completion of a life, maybe someone who's lived to be 98, like my neighbor uh, who taught me how to make quilts. And the completion of that life is such a celebration. Um, And there's so many different ways that we experience loss and death as a part of life. And I thought, that's really interesting to embrace that. And again, I'm really glad now that I did include that section because death has become a much more clear and present part of our lives in the last six months. I I don't know anybody who has been untouched by um, by loss during this pandemic. And as you say, the 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 difficulty of of losing someone and grieving without the normal rituals of grief. So I think grief poems are an appropriate part of this, what I'm calling my my relief package that I'm offering to readers. Wow. And it does serve such a beautiful purpose in that way. And that section's adjacent to poems in Walking Each Other Home. Mm-hmm. And those bring us back to another edge on the, you know, the circle of life and back to living in the moment. There's a lovely sequence of poems that move us through moments of mothering, of being a daughter, a daughter-in-law. There's These poems are so active. They're thoughtful and, the, and they ruminate, but they're so active at once. I found, I found them so resonant for that reason. Thank you. Yeah, and there there are uh, poems about being a daughter myself, and poems um, for my own daughters, who are such a, a an Im- immensely important part of my life. And um, kind of retrospective, there both my daughters are are adults now, uh, young adults. But um, it's so amazing to think of their whole lives, and what their lives have been to me. Um, from the time they were very small. The last two sections take us to one long poem in section six called Where It Begins, and it's prefaced by this epigraph by Sylvia Plath. It says, winter is for women, the woman still at her knitting, the bees are flying, they taste the spring. So this is where it begins. The reader will have to decide what it is, but for now, would you say the subject is that it all starts with women? Yeah, yeah, in part. It, I mean, when, um, and it all starts, I mean, wherever you think a process starts, you can always back up and find, no, it really began here, and it really began here. And um, the poem ostensibly is about knitting, which is something <laughs> that I do, which is really important to me. Knitting is kind of... Uh, kind of therapeutic for me because it's doing something with my hands makes me feel useful um, and it also kind of stops the words when I can't stop writing in my head um, so uh, so knitting appears um, in several of these poems you know mm-hmm. throughout the book and also there's a uh, one of my how-to poems is how to shear a sheep uh, mm-hmm. which is really how not to shear a sheep <laughs> but um, 
but some time back, I one I'm I'm a, I'm a great fan of Dylan Thomas, among many other poets that I really love and that I read over and over again just to get the beauty um, and the textures of their words in my own mind. I always I like to read poetry right before I fall asleep at night because I feel like it's it's kind of like flossing the word loving parts of my brain. It's sort of like cleaning out the 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 word part of my mm-hmm. brain. And Dylan Thomas does that especially for me. And so I wanted to try to write a poem that was a little bit like under Milkwood that uses that kind of lyrical, lilting, almost song like language and I thought, I want to write, I was actually asked to contribute a poem, a long poem to a book about knitting. And so I started with knitting, writing about knitting and thinking about, if you back up, well, it's, you know, it's, it's something you do with your hands. But if you back up again, it's something about texture and wool. And if you back up, you get to the sheep, shearing the sheep. And if you get back up from there, it's about the sheep out on the pasture eating grass. And if you back up from there, it's about the sun and the grass singing the body electric, you know, making mm-hmm. making something from sunlight. So if you keep backing up, you can always get to something ethereal, some kind of wonder. And so that's what I wanted to express in this in this poem. Um the barn tendered mercy of nightfall. I wanted to use a language that was um that would just kind of sing a reader into uh into this miracle. Oh, it's it's just gorgeous. Well, and I was I was really tickled after the book after the, that poem was first published in a book about knitting. Writers, write, a lot of writers knit. It turns out. So, mm-hmm. my writer friend knew I knitted, and she asked a lot of writers to contribute their knitting stories or poem, in my case. And the and that year, this uh, long poem actually won an award for. Um, the best American science writing, and I, I thought, well, how astute! Someone was paying attention that science. There's also science in this, in this poem about process and wonder. And um, because I was trained as a scientist, mm-hmm. I believe that. I believe scientific processes are magical and beautiful, and predictable. Yeah, I loved. I love it when the science peeks through. It it does <laughs> in mm-hmm. your poetry. But speaking of the poems that you read, um, I'm thinking about the the poem Insomniac Villanelle. Mm-hmm. It's this brilliant, you know, inventory of all of these um, great poets um, and uh, staying up late at night with them with the reading. That's that mm-hmm. was a particular favorite of mine. Oh, good, good. I um, and it is. I'm very proud that 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 poem is a villanelle, which has a very particular rhyme scheme. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a difficult form because it requires a certain kind of repetition. Certain lines have to be repeated in, again and again in every stanza. And I thought because I wanted to write a poem about insomnia. Uh, which is my uh, fellow traveler, uh, Insomnia, and I have have uh, been together for many, many years, <laughs> and um, and it's surprising how many other uh, how many people I meet who also have had to make their peace with this. And one of the things I do when I'm trying to 
clear my mind of of the day's you know worries or you know like did I pay the electric bill or what am I going to do about the dishwasher or whatever I I I do a kind of a chant and I I a lot of insomniacs do this I think we all have our own ways and for me I go through an alphabet and so for me the handy thing is an alphabet of writers so Austin Byron you know just A B C D and um, to tr- just try to say their names in my head is a kind of meditation to calm me down. And I thought, what a poem that would make, because the whole pro- and and it should be a villanelle because part of the interesting thing about the villanelle form is it it it's there's a tedium in it, um, mm-hmm. which is, is a weird thing to say because it also needs to be interesting. It needs to move, but also come back to this repetition that reminded me of this process so um that was an interesting uh project to craft a villanelle about trying to fall asleep at night and including my litany of alphabetical authors that that try to sing me to sleep every night (laughs) it works it's beautiful (laughs) and uh, hopefully we'll put the reader to sleep no 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 i I think it will have the opposite effect (laughs) So in the biographical information that you provide on your website, you intimated this happenstance in your life. You almost discarded the draft of the bean trees for which ultimately your agent, Francis Golden, did find a publisher. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. And My first novel, yeah. Yes. I almost threw it away. I didn't really, it was the first, you know, important thing I'd ever written and I didn't have any way of knowing whether it was any good or not. And I didn't actually have an agent. I didn't even know what an agent was. I just had looked up, you know, and I, I, I found a name of someone who sounded promising. So I had to decide. I wrote the whole novel while I was pregnant with my first child. And, you know, just before you go into labor, often you'll get this fit of house cleaning. At least that's how it happens to me. This <laughs> nesting thing where I look around and say, oh, this has to go, and I had this pile of papers, and I thought, well, I can throw it away, or I can put it in the mail, horse a piece, you know, which, <laughs> which should I do? <laughs> and I put it in the mail, and um, uh, yeah, and I'm glad I did, because it, it, it established uh, a relationship with that, with that wonderful agent That's and a long career. It's an incredible story. You almost declined the residency invitation at the school where you ended up meeting your husband. Right. These also <laughs> life hinges on these decisions that you know could go one way or the other, and it's um, and I'm I'm so grateful when I look back and see the road that I almost didn't take and wonder what it was that nudged me in that direction. Usually, it is a sense of adventure and a willingness to take a risk. I, th- I feel like, I mean, those moments of, you know, of destiny are really interesting to me when I hear about them, but I still think about the ways in which we can create opportunity and then luck or whatever, something intersects with those efforts. I think, I think like, I think you've created an opportunity for readers through this diverse collection that helps us understand, well, philosophically, but maybe more, just more pointedly than that, what it's all about right now, like what poetry does for us right now in 2020. Yeah, I hope so. 
I hope so. I hope that it's a timely release and that it will bring uh, people comfort. I think there's something really special about poetry, especially in times when, uh, you know, we're more and more divided, more and more are polarized and clinging to different versions of the story, you know, of what really is and what is important. I think what what's lovely about poetry is it, it backs up and can remind us of the things that we all feel together as one. It can re-engage us with the human condition. We all experience grief. You know, we all experience wonder. And to just kind of get back in touch with what we all have in common, um, I, I hope to offer people that, that communion. Barbara King-Solver, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Barbara King-Solver is the author of How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons. It's published by HarperCollins. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.